What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to this online gathering, Coronavirus and Global Politics, Your Questions Answered. I think we've all learned to zoom into a house party for some FaceTime over the past few weeks. Technology has come to the rescue amid uh, what is a quite scary and rapidly evolving pandemic. And perhaps inevitably, as we think about what's going on, we also try to look back to sort of other examples, historical comparisons. And the most recent one, I think, is the financial crash of 2008. You could argue that the absolute parallels with that are fairly limited, but I suspect that's a conversation for another day. But we're still living, nevertheless, with the fallout of what happened then of that crisis. And this pandemic is kind of playing out against that backdrop. And 2008 undoubtedly had a huge impact on global politics across the world. People became, I think it's fair to say, less trusting of politicians, of established parties, less predictable in their voting patterns. Uh, Populists became more popular. So what will be the political impact of this crisis? Some people are saying that this could be a moment to rethink our values, that it could be an opportunity actually to deliver positive change. Others worry that the economic damage that's been wreaked by this crisis will be exploited essentially by authoritarian leaders, desperate to sort of strengthen their grip on power. Well, to discuss the long-term political effects of the crisis, we've brought together a panel of thinkers. Anne Applebaum is a prize-winning historian, staff writer for The Atlantic, and a senior fellow at the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. She's the author of several books, most recently Red Famine, Stalin's War on Ukraine, and her book Gulag, A History, won the 2004 Pulitzer Prize for Nonfiction. David Goodhart is the founding editor of Prospect magazine. He's currently head of Demography, Immigration and Integration Unit at the Think Tank Policy Exchange. His 2017 book, The Road to Somewhere, The Populist Revolt and the Future of Politics, is an analysis of the political and moral fault lines that divide Brexit Britain and Trump's America. And Paul Mason is a journalist, writer and filmmaker. He's the former economics editor for Newsnight and Channel 4 News and author of books including Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future and Clear, Bright Future, A Radical Defence of the Human Being. Welcome to you all. I just want to ask a quick question because it is, I am, as you can see, in my son's bedroom. He's safely in Australia. I've kind of just moved into his bedroom. David, first of all. I am in the heartland of the British liberal intelligentsia in Hampstead, North London. (laughs) Paul Mason, where are you? I'm in Kennington, South London, half a mile from Parliament. And there are there are sparrow hawks circling above us, new wildlife colonising central London. Absolutely. And Anne Applebaum, where are you? 
I am in rural Poland. I'm in the northwest part of the country. Um, the nearest big city is called Bydgoszcz, which is a place that many Anglophones have difficulty pronouncing. Fantastic. Well, you're actually outside the uh, the southeastern bubble that we, uh, the three of us appear to be inhabiting. There are lots of big issues to discuss today. Um, and of course, we'll have lots of time for questions from people who are tuning in. But I think the, the fundamental kind of the basic thought that we've tried to grapple with is, does this pandemic change politics? And does it perhaps mark the beginning of big government? Anne Applebaum. That's probably exactly the right question to begin with, because of course, over the last few days and weeks, what we've seen is, you know, a major shift. And we've seen, you know, big government takeover in ways that many of us couldn't have imagined, ranging from police telling us when we can and can't leave our houses to enormous government, um, you know, economic and financial programs to the takeover of healthcare services and so on. And so, you know, there's, there isn't really a debate to be had about whether that's happening now. It's certainly happening. I would just warn everybody, though, who has a preset idea of how this crisis is going to end and how it's going to come out, you know, six months from now or a year from now or even two years from now. Because one of the effects that you can already begin to see, actually, even a little bit where I am, and I think maybe also in Britain um, and certainly in Italy, is a kind of pushback against big government. So the feeling of being controlled isn't something that people are going to like. And you may discover as this crisis comes to an end that it begins to push in the opposite direction. But but certainly right now, you know, we're seeing something that is, you know, throughout history, um, you know, you beginning with, you know, the, the plague arriving in Venice in the 14th century. You see that when people are afraid, um, they're often willing to trade things and they'll trade their freedom um, in exchange for some idea of safety. Uh, that's what's happening now. What things will look like down the line when people are less afraid may be a little bit different. David Goodhart, is big government back with a vengeance? I want to agree with Anne, and I think we have got to be careful of what one might call corona confirmation bias, you know, that we, we all kind of read into the crisis, the kind of patterns that we were reading into things beforehand. Although having said that, I do think to the extent that there is a general paradigm shift here, both economically and politically. It is a kind of reinforcement of things that were happening anyway. With the sort of trend towards not exactly deglobalization, that's almost too strong, but the caveats to globalization that were coming in in all sorts of different ways. You know, world trade fell last year. We haven't had a new global trade agreement since 1993. I mean, the sort of general shift in Western politics anyway tended to be a little bit with the partial exception of the US in this respect, a little bit to the left economically and a little bit to the right culturally. And I think certainly in terms of the reinforcement of the nation state, of national social contracts, you know, the, the, the international organisations have not flourished in this crisis. The EU has not had a good crisis. And that's, that's partly because it can't in some ways. I mean, it, you know, most listening to this broadcast, even who are quite well educated, don't know who the head of the EU is, who the head of the EU commission is. You, know, you look to your nation state and the familiar, your familiar governments to lead you. And obviously, in the economics, we are seeing huge interventions. I mean, even bigger probably than 2008. Um, I mean, that's the real uh, sort of expansion of government. I think in terms of reduction in rights, they're happening in mainly in very, well, certainly in Europe, in very, very liberal countries, with the possible exception of Hungary and, and to a lesser Poland, they're happening in very liberal 
countries, and I, don't, I think most people don't have any anxiety that the kind of normal liberal rules will reassert themselves once the crisis has receded. But the, the bigger question is how much of the economic intervention will recede, and I think perhaps somewhat less expect. Paul Mason, what do you think? I think we're seeing big economic government, uh, and in the process we're seeing... The, some illusions uh, fall away. The, the, the illusion that central banks are somehow independent and not part of the state, uh, which people like me have been saying for you know, many years, it, it is an illusion. Uh, suddenly, um, central banks are at the centre of the global response and have been, uh, I think, exemplary in, in both the speed and the innovative, w- the speed of the response and the innovative nature of the response. So our own Bank of England here has started to lend directly to the government to an unspecified account uh, amount today. But we're not seeing, I don't think we're seeing big state in the uh, yet. Um, in fact, if you think about the, uh, for, for a, a left political economist like me, the, the required response is big fiscal stimulus, big monetary stimulus, and then the missing bit is the state takes command of the economy or, or parts of the economy, like the medical services and goods economy. That's missing at the moment, especially in Britain. Uh, where we've had this, I call it the Sergeant Wilson approach. Sergeant Wilson in Dad's army is the platoon commander, and he always asks the troops, would you mind awfully standing in line? And um, I think that's the way the British state has approached this so far. I think it looks like in the developed world that we might be reaching the epidemiological peak of this first wave. And so um, I don't think we're going to see many more draconian uh, we're not going to see so many Chinese-style lockdowns, but I think the next phase of it, if we then accept that there's going to be wave after wave of, of, of this infection over several years, I would expect the next move of governments would be at borders. Um, because we, we re- London right now, you know, we're supposed to be in lockdown. You can't go in the park and sit on a bench, but anybody can fly into Heathrow. Yeah. It's quite strange. And I think that the population, as it becomes harder to accept the lo- lockdowns, will begin to ask questions about who is coming here on a temporary basis and why. Just, uh, Anne, that's a very important point, and I would like to pick up on it. But, Anne, I wonder what you make of, of uh, the point made uh, by Paul and uh, by David about the permanence or not otherwise is it is it a shift do you think publics will accept having accepted the, the shrinking of their liberties that they will also accept perhaps a different role of the state more willing to accept I mean it partly depends on how the state performs um, you know again we're we're all going to accept mm-hmm. restrictions on our movement um, we all are going to accept um, I mean, for example, in a place like the United States, where we have private health care, we're all going to accept and I think begin to demand for more state intervention in the healthcare system. But, you know, there is no track record of you know, state run economies that it looks very successful. Um, and if we do begin to have, I don't know, state takeover of particular branches, I mean, I'm now extrapolating way into the future. But if you can imagine collapse of parts of the economy, you can imagine food crisis, you know, at some point in the future in some places. Um, if you begin to have state takeover of businesses and industries, you know, you may discover that the state isn't very good at that and has, in, in fact, hasn't been very good at it in the past and won't be good at it now. So, I mean, a lot depends on how the state performs, how these enormous experimental uses of vast sums of money 
um, work out. I mean, as I, I think you said, Rachel, and, 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 and others have said already, that this is a kind of experimental moment. And we this isn't a this isn't a recession or a depression of any kind that we recognize from the past. Um, this is something very new. And so almost everything that people are going to try is going to be a guess, you know, what what will work and what doesn't. And, um, and what do you and, make you know, of Paul? If I'm wrong and, there's a, and the state performs superbly and everybody's job is saved and, you know, it's all great, then I can imagine, yeah, a lot of support going through. But I would just I would just put in a, a reminder that state control of the economy, heavy state control of the economy in the past hasn't worked. Paul's nodding. I'm going to let you come in for a moment, Paul. Well, you know, as 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 someone's identified with the left, I mean, I think we have to say that is true. And and uh, when I wrote my book, a lot of mainstream economists said, "Why is this guy so obsessed with?" Soviet economics. Uh, I'm obsessed with it because it failed. And there are very uh, important lessons to look, to be learned for those moments when you do have to uh, to, to do state intervention. I think the, the I mean, we should, however, since we're talking about politics, I mean, we should we should acknowledge that, you know, this crisis raises the, you know, English political philosophy 101 question, which is the question posed by Thomas Hobbes, you know, on what basis does the state have legitimacy? And, and as I remember my Hobbes, it is uh, as long as it protects the people. People are handing sovereignty to a, um, an automaton. Remember, he describes it as an artificial, an artificial kind of a man. So we hand power to an automaton that will do things to us that we don't like because we fear uh, that without it, our security is gone. But but Hobbes reminds us that that if it fails, then the obligation, then all the obligations fail. And um, so far, that hasn't happened. My my huge concern is when this virus, and I know this is the concern of some people in the security and intelligence community, when this virus hits states that are on the brink of failure anyway, does that create ungoverned space in the world order at a scale that we've not really seen uh, well in recent history and and if i can put to you the point that paul was making earlier which is linked to all of this is is it about borders now is that where people will look if we're going to look to the state to protect us then are we actually going to say right we also want to know who's coming in and out in a way that perhaps we didn't before the border question is complicated because there were a lot of countries that declared the border shut at the beginning of this crisis as if that were a policy, um, and then found that it actually didn't make that much difference. I mean, um, President Trump declared that, you know, that he cut off all flights with China. Mm-hmm. Um, by the time he'd done that, uh, it was actually far too late and the disease was already spreading inside the United States. But that gave people the illusion that something had been done. We had a very similar thing and on a smaller scale happened here in Poland. You know, a couple of weeks ago, they also slammed shut the border as a result of which there was terrible chaos and cars backed up at the, at the German border and, you know, people scrambling to get home and probably people infecting one another on the way home because of the, because of the rush and the catastrophe. And so, you know, again, border closures are something that people are, are, are willing to accept. And, and even we may even see cities being shut off. There are rumors of some of that happening here too. You know, once you get, you know, the hot spots, people may want to cut them off or I mean, this is a very old management of plague, management of epidemics going back mm. hundreds of years this kinds of thing was done. So I think people will be willing to accept that. But it's very important that people understand that that's not the solution to the problem. And that doesn't end the disease. And that doesn't, you know, that doesn't fix our healthcare systems. And that, you know, so so the, the, the border thing can be a kind of red herring. You know, it's a it's a it's it's a people think it's a solution, but it's not. 
know, yes, David, go on. Right, just on the border thing, I mean, I, I don't think anybody thinks it's a total solution. But, I mean, when you're restricting people domestically to such a large extent and not closing borders, um, I mean, obviously the virus doesn't respect borders, but people, uh, it, this is, it's a highly contagious disease. Right. And if you do not control movement across borders, you are opening yourself. I mean, uh, you know, when the post-mortem when we come to have the post-mortem, I mean, one of the things that China will be accused of is of not closing its border earlier and of allowing mm. flights to go out from Wuhan and places that were the epicentre of the crisis. So, I mean, I agree with you. Obviously, there's a certain amount of sort of muscle flexing, you know, the nation state, its first reaction, you know, in in, in Poland or Denmark or wherever is, is to close the border. It's not necessarily very efficacious. But when you are requiring your own citizens to not, even leave homes. I mean, as Paul was saying earlier, I mean, to, to still have have flights coming in from from Italy and from China does seem slightly bizarre. But I think the interesting question is how quickly these things will be re-established. I mean, this is, I mean, particularly, I mean, the European Union is the most sort of post-national liberal globalist part of the world, if you like. And how quickly are they going to, and, and all of that has been chucked out of the window for now. You know, we've returned to, uh, you know, a continent of nation states, all essentially trying to respond at, at a national level, some degrees of cooperation. Uh, and we shouldn't forget there were huge degrees of cooperation in the scientific and medical sphere. So, you know, globalization, very, very functional and useful globalization continues there. But in almost all other respects, the, these have been national responses. And, you know, when is Schengen going to return? When will free movement return? When, when will, you know, you know the, the normal rules on state aid return and so on? I mean, it could, be, it could be years before we return to the kind of EU status quo we had before, and perhaps we and never will. Paul Mason, Giuseppe Conte, the Italian prime minister today, was saying that he believes the EU risks failing as a project, project because it, he's called on it essentially to act in a coordinated way. And we still have this ongoing row about euro bonds and things this afternoon. There's no sign of that right now, is there? That kind of cooperation that you might have expected. The, there's no sign of the, corp, of the complete cooperation, of the mutualization of the debt. And I wouldn't expect, expect there to be. Uh, unfortunately, I, I would advocate it. I would think it was a good idea. But we, we're seeing the limits of solidarity uh, explored with the Dutch government, with the German government. Mm. You know, and, and, and let me assure you that if the Nordic and Scandinavian countries were in the euro, they would be equally uh, un, unsympathetic as well. Um, so, but I think there is more that can be done. And what, as we speak right now, the meeting's going on and they're in search of a, of a compromise. However, I think that the, the big, the bigger problem I, I see with Europe, apart from the fact that it's got uh, a set, the most dysfunctional relationship between the central bank and the fiscal authorities in the world, is that it, it is, it is also not really acting as a, as a global leader. And what we're seeing, and I think this is something that I, that I think does frame the whole crisis for me, the, the shadow of the 1930s. We know from the 1930s it wasn't just austerity that destroyed the world order. It was the failure of a single power to be able to lead and coordinate. Now, it's, it's quite clear to me that despite the fact that the Federal Reserve of America is doing great stuff, uh, it's, it, that stuff is being done for America's benefit. Um, it's also clear that China and Russia are each in their own ways trying to game this as a kind of great power crisis. And my, as a, as a, you know, ex-European citizen and still part of the single market until December, what I worry about is that Europe is just not stepping up to the global plate to be able to, to set standards of behavior, 
you, you know, you see this crisis in, in the European Research Council. Uh, I, I still don't know what, how to get to the bottom of that. But it, it, it's quite clear there's something dysfunctional about almost every pan-European institution. And when you want the Europeans to be stepping up and, and, you know, on behalf of 500 million people saying, you know what, we have a vision for the way out of this. Um, they are the at right now, they are the, the political elite that is least capable of doing that. I mean, you know, I mean, they couldn't even sort out Bosnia or the Ukraine. I mean, how are they going to sort out a global crisis? I mean, this is just not on the cards. I mean, I mean, where where we do lack leadership, I guess, is from America. I mean, America is in a far worse position than any either Europe collectively or any individual European country. I mean, it turns out that the that the political divisions are much more toxic there than they. I mean, I mean, it makes me so glad to be a European anyway. Looking at looking at the response of because the central government, you know, even if we didn't have Trump. The central government in America is so weak. All the states are sort of competing against each other, you know, to uh, get hold of as many ventilators as possible. I mean, it's, it's a real mess in America. And, uh, and they lack... Well, the final point, Richard, the, the two things that always, you know, make one quite proud to be British, <laughs> particularly in a crisis, are the NHS and the BBC. And my God, thank God for the BBC and the NHS at the moment. And America lacks the BBC and the NHS. Everybody's getting their separate dollops of news, but, you know, packaged ideologically in America. So there is no agreement on what the facts are, even in America. Well, Anne, I was going to say, it appears that the national has trumped the supranational in this in this crisis, but America is certainly more fractured. I mean, how do you view it with someone who's got a foot in both camps? So, I mean, there, there are sort of several issues that have come up that need to be maybe separated a little bit. I mean, can, can I just say one thing about Europe and the, and the bond issue? You know, this is a, you know, potentially a huge turning point. I'm not sure that everybody in Britain grasps this, but I mean, this is the, the issue of will there be collective responsibility for debt was the issue that, um, you know, that that led to the creation of the U.S. Constitution in 1789. I mean, yeah. this was the thing that destroyed the Confederation of American States and that, you know, Alexander Hamilton pushed really hard for to, to create, you know, the United States of America. I mean, this would be an enormous turning point. And it's not very surprising that people are arguing about it and they don't want to come to an instant decision about it because, you know, if Europe takes responsibility for the debt of member states and that, you know, without having any fiscal um, control, then that's an, that's an enormous step. And it's not at all surprising that it, that it, that it takes time. Um, and, you know, I, I, I do expect, again, we're in a very early moment of this crisis and it is not impossible that it looks a little bit different, you know, in Europe and, and, and around the world later on. But the second thing to say is, you know, David is absolutely right that the, you know, world institutions and the, you know, and, and particularly Western institutions as they exist right now are all kind of built around the assumption of American leadership. You know, that there will be one country, the largest country, the richest country, the most historically, the one of the most generous countries, um, the most outward looking country, that there would be one country that would lead these various organizations, whether it's the WHO or whether it's international financial markets or whether it's the scientific community. We, we assume American leadership and there isn't really a competitor for American leadership because until we get, I don't know, a European constitution and a European president, which seems pretty far away. There isn't there isn't somebody to compete with that. And we have right now. I mean, it is a really unique moment for the first time since the Second World War. 
We have a we have a, a president of the United States who is aggressively uninterested in leading. He does not want to lead the world. He is not interested in the world. He has turned his back to the world, and he's especially not interested in the Western world. He's not interested in his allies or alliances. He's not interested in institutions. He doesn't care about them. Um, he's, you know, he, he he probably, you know, you know, his, his remarks about the WHO have been scattershot and all over the place. Um, and the, the the moment when we could have, you know, an American step and say a step up and say, right, we need to streamline scientific cooperation, which, as David said, I happen to know is going on, you know, right now. We need to streamline you know, these conversations, we need a we need a big global conversation about borders and flights. You know, you know, why is it that the Polish border is closed and the British border is open? You know, is there not some means of coordinating this or doing it more intelligently? We really have no one to lead. Um, mm. Trump is not only not interested in leading the world, as David says, he's not interested in leading the United States. He said, I'm not responsible. He's not you know, he's he's allowing governors to compete against one another well, um, for equipment. So this is a, you know, this is a, this is almost like a catastrophic and historic piece of bad luck that we have this particular kind of president right now. I mean, literally any other president, whether it was, you know, Joe Biden or um, Jeb Bush or Mike Pence or John McCain or any, any Republican candidate you can think of in recent history would not be behaving this way. And so this is, this is a, this is a piece of bad luck we've all been stuck with. So if we characterize Trump as a populist, Paul Mason, is this going to fuel populism or has it finally exposed the charade that actually you do need experts, you do need process, you do need the dull stuff? Well, I think David has actually written something recently, uh, pointed out something that I agree with, that, that as you know, it, as inevitably economies localize or regionalize as a result of this, um, you actually get a confluence of interest between several hitherto warring political factions. So, you know, in the last 10 days, I've heard a lot of green activists, a lot of Extinction Rebellion people saying, look, not only are the clear skies and the quiet skies uh, a vision of how society could be in the future, but this crisis means we need to relocalize production. We need to relocalize supply chains, medicine production, etc. Now, that happens to be the, the program of, of right-wing populism as well, uh, uh, whether it's Trump, whether it's UKIP here, uh, the rest of it. And there, as you know, on the left, there are people who are, unlike me, you know, who, I see what's happening now as, a, as an important urgent temporary statization there are people on the left who see it as that's their strategic goal and and they they, they think it's great now i think all of that together i think it's going to it is going to reorder some of the some of the manias and some of the dynamism that has driven put the politics of right-wing populism left-wing populism whatever you want to call it as someone who spent the last two years trying to keep the united kingdom in the european union uh, and has been described as a left globalist. I'm well aware of the fact that the you know the the moral authority of communitarianism will rise uh, quite naturally as a result of this. It's one thing to say you know on what basis does you do does your kid go to my school you know to a migrant and and someone like me says because we're all citizens of the United Kingdom. If at the end of this the population has made a huge sacrifice and and you know and the, the the taxpayer is in, is subsidizing the economy several times 
greater magnitude than what we did in 2008, then I think that there'll be a natural refocusing of of popular politics towards the state and the bargain with the state, um, which will be seen as far more real than it did when the economy was when when the world economy was globalized, when world trade was growing. I mean, David said earlier it's, it's it fell last year. The WTO put out today a prediction that at worst case scenario, world trade will fall thirty one percent this year. If that happens, then I think that the 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 momentum behind globalism, the moral momentum behind it, will, you know, I think even someone who, as someone who supports it critically, I feel it draining slightly. And I wonder what you make of that. Would you think that this is a moment when globalism begins to fade? It sort of depends what you mean by that. You know, yes, I, clearly we're at a moment when trade has become more difficult, if not impossible. But we're also at a moment when you know, the, the, the developing world, Africa, you know, parts of Asia are going to be, you know, coming out of this will be desperate to be back into the system and back into trade. And if we're going to, you know, we have to remember that the, the wealth of much of the, much of the rest of the world also depends on the return mm. to some kind of trade and some kind of, some kind of normality. Um, and the pressures to, to continue that and to keep it going, um, will also be strong. I mean, the second point is that the, it's so clear to me that this this virus, you know, the long term solution to this can only be global. In other words, as long as this virus exists anywhere in the world, there's the chance that it could reinfect all of our populations. Um, and so I don't really see whether we, you know, whether we're calling them right wing populists or left wing localists or whatever they are. Are they going to block the arrival of a virus? Just mm. you know, I mean, sorry, of a, of a vaccine just because it comes from somewhere abroad? Are they going to stop the cooperation of of international companies to produce vaccines and cures? I mean, I, I saw in the. Um, in the British news today that there's a, you know, there's a U.S. company which is now stepping up to the plate to make tests in Britain. Are people going to say, oh, no, we're not going to have that. We only want British companies making our tests. You know, it's, it's extremely short sighted, I think, to say now that in this moment when nobody can move anywhere or do anything, that that's going to be permanent. I mean, I think once as we pull out of this and as it begins to end, people will want to begin to trade again and they will want um, and they will certainly want as the as the solution to this problem, they will want to go back to, um, you know, to, 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 to international trade and commerce of all kinds. Paul, just briefly before we go to the questions, is it slightly naive to think that this global local vision, it's sort of quite romantic, but is it unrealistic ultimately? Well, um, I think, look, thinking absolutely uh, concretely, I, I can't see a, a future British uh, business and, and industry minister not thinking, well, where is the nearest factory that can create that can produce medical uh, ppe equipment um we, as far as we know it's at the, at the moment it's all being produced for, for the uk in tunisia and a lot of it has come from china i think it would be sensible to say well given given the world is not that resilient and it, it hasn't you know we're going to have the biggest economic slump since 1929 and at the end of that i mean it feels okay now while my while my fridge is full of uh, frozen food but at the end of it when the person outside you know is is, is on the jobless for months it's going to feel really bad and people are going to say well how do we create a, a different kind of resilience they accepted that globalization creates resilience because i can order on amazon today and an mm. e electronic goods come into my letterbox from china tomorrow 
Uh, but that kind of resilience uh, will be in question. And I think, look, I, I agree. I think that the, w- one of my fears is uh, when we get to the vaccine stage, we've already seen governments. Uh, Turkey is, is a, a, a alleged to have done this. The United States is alleged to have done this. Basically reaching into the global supply chain and taking physically supplies that were destined for other people. Um, when we get to the virus, sorry, when we get to the vaccine, I think that's going to be, if, if we don't have global coordination and, and some you know open source intellectual property for that vaccine, then it's going to get uh, very, very, very scratchy. And especially if that vaccine does happen, and it's quite likely that vaccine does get invented in China. Uh, because at that point, then, you know, who gets the vaccine first and on what basis will become a geopolitical issue? I'm going to pause our conversation because I want to bring in questions and there are lots of them. So I want to pick up actually on on with the first question on what we were just talking about, these global relationships and our dependence on China. Sylvester Murphy asks, why doesn't the world unite against China? Pointing perhaps to the beginning of this virus in that so-called wet market and, and perhaps Chinese eating practices that, that may seem strange to much of the rest of the world and are now being blamed for the arrival of this virus. Paul Mason, is this the moment when perhaps the world does take a stronger, tougher Trumpian stance against China, you could say? Well, even if it wanted to, it couldn't, because China very cleverly and in its own interest has created a big network of uh, geopolitical and diplomatic influence. I mean, it, it is it is shamelessly using uh, physical aid to help the countries that have signed up to the Belt and Road Agreement. That's 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 what it's doing. And you can't say, I think there's a big wake-up moment happening, going to happen in, 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 in the United States. Uh, it's the moment when you, you, you look at something that's been seen as a, as a partner in development, China, and then you get a president who completely reframes it as an upstart, as a kind of threat, uh, as, as a kind of quasi-enemy. And you think, OK, we're going to deal with that enemy. Well, you know, you're not going to deal with it because it is already powerful enough to, to handle itself on the world stage. China is the biggest creditor in the world, bigger than the IMF, bigger than any central bank. China has lent more money to the developing world than, than everybody else put together, $1.5 That buys diplomatic goodwill. It's buying diplomatic goodwill in Greece and Italy and Spain as we speak. So, the, as I said before, hanging over my framing of this crisis is the fear of what happened in 1931 to 34, when we saw the, the global system fall apart because an essentially economic crisis got weaponized into a geopolitical breakup. Obviously, the dynamics are different. Obviously, we've got global connectivity. We are speaking across, you know, across borders. People are listening to us. Um, we are a much more connected world. But no, I think it's... I think that China clearly made some mistakes. It made some mistakes, and it and and it jailed the uh, it, it 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 arrested the guy who who, who blew the whistle. Um, it clearly then influenced the WHO. But has America ever influenced the WHO? Has America ever played games with the United Nations? Of course it has. We have to try and restrain great power politics and maintain the multilateral aspects of the system. But, but two questions then. Is President Trump wrong to talk about the China virus? And secondly, yes. you talk about, we've talked about leadership a few moments ago. Uh, if China is lending, I think a fifth of, of African debt is now owned by China. Should China also then take a leadership role, which perhaps it isn't in the multilateral way that we might expect? Well, I'll keep it brief. Um, yes. Yes and yes. 
sorry. Sorry, Anna. Uh, so, no, so, um, I was going to say, first of all, be careful with Trump in China, because actually he stopped using the expression China virus. And he's also issued a couple of odd tweets praising President Xi. We don't exactly know why that's happened, but it's not inconceivable that some version of what Paul has just said um, has influenced him. You know, if China, China has been producing um, medical equipment, um, it may have threatened not to send it to the United States. We're not really sure, but we do know that Trump has, has gone very quiet about China. Um, mm. And so therefore, underestimating the degree to which China is already influencing the world and is already um, in which some of this propaganda, which seems very transparent and, you know, almost ridiculous to many of us, um, is working, um, you know, is something that, again, something just not not to underestimate. And I say this is somebody who's who's not in favor of it. Um, mm. And again, that's also, I mean, partly a function of the absence of U.S. leadership and where where is the American president, you know, who would be sending help to, you know, to, to, to Italy and to Spain? You know, where is the alternative um, source of funding and, and help? I'm, there mm. just isn't one. I mean, I would add only one caveat, which is that people do know this virus came from China. They do know that it was covered up initially. There is a lot of suspicion about Chinese statistics and what actually happened at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and I, I can imagine some further down the road international backlash as well. But but this is exactly why China is is doing the propaganda that it's doing and why it's why it's mm -hmm. stepping forward right now. It's in order to head that off when it comes. Um, but, you know, we we would all like to be in the position to sort of unite the world against China. But China is actually already working very hard um, to unite the world itself. Ronnie Landau asks, will the coronavirus pandemic exacerbate the growth of self-interested nationalism, or on the contrary, will it strengthen a sense of our common humanity in the interconnectedness of peoples? We talked about this a little bit, but more specifically, self-interested nationalism, David, do you think there's many examples of that happening in the face of this virus? There is, but I, 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 mean, I don't think, I mean, I think it's possible both to have quite a nationalist and internationalist response to the crisis. Indeed, we have seen that, I mentioned earlier. I mean, we've, we've seen a tremendous um, a globalized scientific and medical community response, while at the same time at the at the at the political level, you know, different countries, you know, trying to maximize their access to ventilators. I mean, you know, that that's understandable that you know, in a crisis, you you look to your nation and your nation looks to its own existing resources. You know, coming out of the crisis, there are opportunities for greater internationalization in the specifically in the health area. I mean, obviously, beefing up. The resources of the WHO, but when you know all of these sort of grand statements from people like Gordon Brown, I'm a little bit sceptical of um, that. You know, more international cooperation when we're actually in the heat of the battle, as it were. I'm not sure would make a huge amount of difference. It might help a little bit at the margin. It's coming out of it. It's you know, then there is the opportunity. I mean, you know, his great crisis in 2008, 2009 was in some ways a relatively simple one um, because you had to have an, a, a coordinated economic response to persuade the markets to go on you know, in, investing in countries, you know, buying their bonds and so on. I mean, that was why that was important. We don't, we, we don't face quite the same problem now, although we may do in the aftermath. But I think, you know, if there is to be a kind of new deal um, in our own country, in Europe, uh, you know, across the world, um, you know, across the Western world anyway, I, I think it will be a kind of 
I mean, as Paul was saying earlier before I disappeared, um, there'll be a kind of more community. It'll be a kind of liberal nationalist one. It'll be a liberal nationalist green response. So I think, uh, and for perfectly good reasons in many ways, we discovered how overextended our supply chain. We were over-dependent on globalization in many ways, and we will build in more self-sufficiency. We will build in cushions into into our economies. You know, the fact that we do not have a mass vaccine manufacturer in the UK could, in three or four weeks' time or a couple of months' time, turn out to be a real disaster. And, you know, remember, actually, at the time of the, um, of the no-deal Brexit argument, you know, when you had all these permanent secretaries, you know, coming out and saying, oh, we've only got kind of three days supply of some absolutely vital thing, you think, well, what the bloody hell have you been up to for the last <laughs> few years? <laughs> I mean, we, we need that cushion and that, and, you know, all of those things are sort of primarily national. But, you know, but we will also have a huge amount of in- international cooperation. This has not been a great period for the, for many of the international bodies, the UN, the EU and so on. But we will, I, you know, there's still been quite i mean you know germany has been taking has been taking patients from france and italy not because the eu has told it to but just because of you know you know humane internationalism that will continue to thrive even in a somewhat more national focused global economy and political culture and applebaum where does hungary fit into this picture well, the, the situation in Hungary is a little bit different. This isn't really an issue of nationalism. It's really an issue of authoritarianism. So, yeah, in, in, in Hungary, for those of you who don't know, the, the, um, a few days ago, um, the parliament, essentially the government passed a law that gave the prime minister the right to issue decrees and essentially to ignore existing law and to ignore existing legislative institutions as a way of coping with the crisis. And this, a little bit like the slamming of the border shut um, here, was a, a huge gesture designed to cover up the fact that Hungary has an extremely weak healthcare service, um, very underfunded, partly thanks to corruption, including corruption around Viktor Orban's political party. Um, and so there was a, you know, it was it was a way of distracting everybody's attention and 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 gathering power into the prime minister's hands, and he's. He's even used it over the last few days to do things like cut certain kinds of subsidies to political parties, to opposition parties. In other words, to make sure that in the course of the crisis in which people are likely to get very angry at him and his government, um, that he doesn't lose doesn't doesn't lose power. And, he, you know, that's an example of something we will probably see in a lot of other places, which is. Um, uh, you know, and in particularly much weaker places. I mean, Hungary may be the only one in Europe um, that, that, that goes that far, but we may see um, dictators or semi-dictators or, you know, illiberal leaders begin to use the crisis as a way of garnering or keeping or gaining power. Um, and that's, um, Hungary is really the first European example, but I have no doubt there are going to be others. I'm going to keep the questions coming because there's quite a few. Tim Litt asks... Do the panellists think that the COVID crisis demonstrates the failure of the marketisation of public services? Well, Mason, I wonder what you think about that. Well, it's not so much the marketisation of public services, but I was I warned at the very outset of this that my biggest fear in Britain was the ineffectual nature of our governance system, because of it, it, because of the way not that it, not that market relationships have been injected between. Uh, key, as- key elements of it, but the market norms of behaviour. In other words, you know, if you look now in the United Kingdom, we have a problem with civil su- with with the politicians saying 
They can't order the NHS, the National Health Service, to do anything. Likewise, they can't order Public Health England, which is our, our public health body, to do anything. And that is true because long ago, probably under the Blair government, these organisations were given a quasi-non-governmental status. Uh, now, I've sat... In the United Kingdom, we have this thing, the Public Accounts Committee. Uh, I've sat in, in inquiry after inquiry, watching civil servants being grilled because some huge contract went wrong. Or uh, I think when we get to the Grenfell inquiry, it's the same thing. The answer is always, look, there was a complicated arrangement between the state, um, a quasi-state body, and then the private sector that was supposed to deliver this stuff in the first place. I see that as one of the prime reasons for the for the delay in Brit in the in the effectiveness of Britain's response. Um, so, look. However, this is a crisis where the public institution of the NHS has, has has sprung into life despite the absence of PPE equipment and the shortage of ventilators. It's it's worked, and I think there'll be a huge advert in future for that working. Um, I also think. In the next phase, we'll see a very positive example of the way the, the state and the private sector can work together because the state sets the, sets the long-term goals, the framework. All the private sector needs is an, is a, is an answer to the question, what do you want, guys? And they will uh, very quickly, like some of the ma major companies, Siemens, BMW, have quickly retooled to try and produce these ventilators. So I think we could be looking at, at an advertisement for how the, the public and private sector should work, but I am mm. worried about the, the, the long-term impact of the fragmentation of governance. Mm. Mm. David Goodhart? Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, of course, the great success story of our response has been really from the army, the building of the... <laughs> The Nightingale hospitals, you know, we, we beat the Chinese army. We did it in nine days, not two weeks. Um, but I think I think Paul is partly right. Although, you know, like all of these things, if you remember what happened before in the days of huge local authority, direct labor organizations and so on. I mean, we had massive inefficiencies and, yeah. and mine and small scale corruption, too. So, you know, the new public management, whatever it was called, that led to all of these complicated chains of responsibility was brought in for a reason, um, even if even if it, even if it also has its failings in certain respects. And I think you're right that we I mean, at least it, our initial response showed the the institutional problem of the centre not having enough. I mean, we kind of fell between stools. We had a centre that was too weak, as you say, to tell the NHS to bloody well, you know, do testing in this way. Um, and yet we weren't devolved enough either. You know, we've seen the strength of devolved institutions in Germany where all the different states just sort of got on with it, with all their different laboratories. Now, it is true they had a big diagnostics industry that we didn't have. There were, all, there were other factors, too, in why Germany did better on testing. But it was partly, I think, that, that sort of that devolution of institutions Um uh, and like I say, we, uh, we, I mean, I think we have now sort of grasped the nettle. And I think, you know, uh, I mean, everyone is, seems to be kind of working better to, to, together now. But I think that was the problem initially. Anne Applebaum, one thing that's been striking on this question about uh, public services is what became clear as far as the United States was concerned is the fragmentation of the health sector and the impact that played on the early part of this, putting aside what may have happened at, at the White House, may or may not have happened. Um, do you think it will change minds in America about how public services are perceived? It doesn't seem to be. Well, we're, it's, it's early days. I mean, a lot depends on what happens in the next U.S. election. But 
Um, it is my guess that this will be a, a kind of make or break moment for U.S. healthcare. Um, you know, everybody can see that. I mean, you know, aside you know, that that the system is the, the fact that the system doesn't cover everybody. Just that alone means that it's a danger to everybody because as long as some people in the society have it and some people are don't have enough money to go to the doctor to have a test or or go to a hospital to be cured then the disease is going to be a danger to everybody and so this may be the moment when people perceive finally that some kind of national system is what is necessary it may not be an nhs style system as david said this the, the one of the systems that that seems to have been performed the best in Europe is the German one, which is a very mm. mixed system. It's kind of public-private, and you know, in, in, you know, people have different insurance companies. So, I, you know, I'm not saying that there's a formula that people will follow that, that that's precise, but but the the understanding that there needs to be public health mm. is something that I think is has already that's already happened um, in the United States. There's a deeper problem though in the U.S. as well, which is that it's not just the issue is not just the healthcare system. The issue is also the healthcare, the public healthcare bureaucracy, mm. which also fell down very badly in the United States in January. Um, there was a doctor in Seattle who was beginning to pick up, who was a flu, who was doing a flu st- survey, who picked up very early on the spread of COVID in Seattle. Um, and she attempted to alert authorities and she tried to get permission to do more testing. Um, and she was basically shut down because the system was kind of too inflexible and she didn't have the right kind of lab or the right kind of license. Um, and this was a huge missed opportunity in the United States. And I think, I think the, the system by which we have neglected key public service institutions, public health, environmental institutions, energy institutions. You know, we've allowed all these big government departments to be run by, particularly under this administration, by lobbyists and by people who don't really have the capacity or the or the or the experience to do it. I mean, I think all that sort of that amateurism, I think, really has to go. Um, And really, the turning point in the U.S. is whether people finally perceive that. Um, mm. And whether, therefore, they're able to choose public officials um, in November, not just the president, but across the country, who are willing to to invest in public services and civil service and to and to and to recreate an, uh, you know, some competence in the federal government, which has been removed over the past two decades. Mm. Well, Tom Callaby is one of the 650 people listening. And his question is, how can we generate a similar response and degree of urgency to the climate crisis? Or are we doomed to react too late to that as well? Paul Mason, it's a question that people have actually asked repeatedly, haven't they? If we can, uh, you know, generate all this action, all this money, all this determination over this, why can't we be the same about climate change? Uh, It's even more fundamental in the United Kingdom. We've been told we're following the science. Uh, Well, uh, if, if we're going to follow the science, then we need to start uh, over a, you know, a fairly rapid uh, transition to, to start deco- decarbonising the, the UK economy. Um, unfortunately, from my point of view, the, the UK uh, electorate more or less roundly rejected uh, a, a programme based on that. You know, the, the Labour programme was to borrow $400 billion and spend it on uh, decarbonising the economy over 10 years, the famous Green New Deal, uh, and we lost. Um, no, the, we, this is the first argument I want to have is it's not an either or. 400 billion happens to be what I think is going to cost uh, the UK uh, government to, to uh, the, by the end of this crisis. The, 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 the British Treasury had already committed an, an extra 200 billion uh, of debt over the next five years. And I think we'll probably have to double that. 
No, I think that what my big fear is, is that when we come out of this with something like 100% of uh, debt to GDP in Britain, Italy would probably be above 150. Um, America doesn't care because that's Trump's philosophy. But um, there'll be, from traditional mainstream economics, the argument, well, now we have to have austerity again. Um, and I think our population will not accept austerity uh, again on the scale that it, that it happened that, that happened over the last 10 years. And especially not because... I think the young, above all, do understand that we're going to have to borrow and spend to decarbonize the world. Um, I, I would caution, however, there is a, a there is a theme and a framing going around on in green politics that says, look how brilliant is it that the sky is quiet and that the air is clear and, and that there are no cars on the roads. To us, to, to, to the a kind of, uh, David would call us the anywhere, anywheres, you know, to, to us, the, the kind of professional elite. Yes, it seems great. But if you're a shelf stacker, if you're a, an Uber driver, mm-hmm. it's, you're terrified. The, that silence. You're, if, if you're a steward, a steward or a stewardess on an air, airliner, that silence is terrifying because it means that you, you, know, you have no future economically. Mm-hmm. So we must understand that large parts of the population are not thinking, well, hey, how, how great it is that the air quality's improved. They're terrified for their future. Mm. Anne Applebaum, there's so much there. I'll let you pick and choose what you'd like to respond to. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I have a terrible feeling that you do have to have some kind of crisis before people react. I mean, how many papers were written about pandemics and how many predictions were made? I mean, I, I was actually on the Washington Post editorial board um, right after 9-11 and wrote multiple editorials about this was about at the time we were worried about bio warfare, which which is very similar to pandemic planning. And lots of money was invested and lots of people had been thinking about it. And Bill Gates made a big speech about it, you know, some a few months ago, talking about the, the potential for a, a coming pandemic. And so it's not as if nobody knew or no one was prepared, but there was something about the actual thing arriving that it was really only then that suddenly you had this burst of activity and even creativity. I mean, suddenly we're hearing about new kinds of vaccines that weren't possible before. And suddenly bureaucracies are letting people do what they want. And suddenly the NHS is acting in a way it wasn't allowed to act before and doctors are collaborating and so on. So, I mean, it, it may be that one needs some kind of shock or some something mm-hmm. that has to happen before before people react. And, you know, I, I hate to disappoint people who want humanity to plan in advance and to and, and, mm-hmm. to, and to do things before the catastrophe happens. But we might we might need some small shock or some small change um, before we get the same kind of outpouring of creativity. I think that's just the way the human brain works. Yeah. Yeah. C- can I can I chip in? Do, can you, David. Yes, absolutely. Um, no, I agree with with Anne. I mean, you know, this is why, you know, wars for all their horror are also incredibly creative moments. Usually, you know, you think of all the extraordinary things, inventions that came out of the, both the First and the Second World Wars. I mean, obviously, I'm not recommending we have a war, but it, but in some ways, I mean, this may be a way of, of having some of the sort of beneficial effects, the creativity of a war without the without the horror, or at least with a rather kind of lower version of the horror. But I mean, in terms of the environment, I mean, the, the, the threat, the threat is not so immediate. I mean, that is why we're not reacting in the same way. Um, and, you know, and we can, to some extent, mitigate the, you know, the long-term consequences of the climate crisis. Um, it's true, and it's true, the um, the scientists 
view. I mean, there is much actually, there's much more consensus, you might say, actually, about the environment. There is about the current crisis. I mean, the whole question of the return of the expert seems to be completely, um, completely wrong, or rather a complete misreading. I mean, it, if I can sort of channel my inner Nigel Farage, I mean, you know, even to Nigel Farage, the experts, the real experts never went away. I mean, you know, why would you, you know, uh, you know, a, a populist leader, why would you be against well, well, with the single uh, exception of the, the cult of the vaccine, uh, the, the, the anti-vaccine cult, why would you be against uh, scientific experts or but medical they were. But, but the, yes, they, 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 they very much were and are. Yeah. Right no, now, the Trump supporters are anti-experts. No, no, I absolutely, you're absolutely wrong on that. I, 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 mean, I watched them on The vast majority of them. Michael Gove, you know, and a lot of this anti-expert stuff comes from his comments. You know, Michael Gove was commenting about the CBI and the Institute of Directors and the positions they had taken about European integration going back. I mean, it is those kinds of experts that the people one might call populists. OK, David, we're nearly out of time. And I'm going to give you a couple of moments just to come back on that. But it's a whole new subject. And I I want to wrap this up. But do come back a little bit. No, I mean, there's just no question that the, the... the backlash against medical expertise in the United States is very strong and mm-hmm. and and it's on television every night on Fox News you can watch it the the push for fake drugs or unproven drugs is very very strong the 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 the, the calls to get rid of Dr. F- Anthony Fauci who's the who's the, the America's top infectious diseases doctor to, to have him, you okay, know, all well, of this is very like strong and very powerful. <laughs> and it's very, and it is a, it is a strong undercurrent. A lot of, I don't like the word populism, but so-called mm-hmm. populist or, um, or kind of anti-establishment movements. Many of them have a very strong anti-science bias. Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to try and squeeze in two more questions if you don't mind, because there's so many of them. Christina Kiminute, and I'm sorry if I've said your name wrong, Christina, asks, is there any reason to think that liberal democracies have dealt with the crisis worse than other political systems? David Goodhart, I wonder what you think about that. Um, Well, I think we probably dealt with them worse than the Far Eastern governments, both democratic and undemocratic, partly because we were much more kind of individualistic cultures. You know, people don't obey rules as readily and so on. I mean, we've we've had a huge variety of responses, even within the liberal democracies, following the crisis in Germany and in France, to, to some extent, watching on um, TV news apps. And actually, we're having all the same arguments in, in, in all those countries about, you know, lack of PPE and so on. Some countries have done better than others for reasons we talked about earlier. Germany has been particularly strong in its reaction, partly because of the federal structure, partly because of the capacity it already had in the system before the crisis. But I think actually what's really interesting is the difference of the, the differences it's revealed in kind of deep underlying political cultures. I mean, particularly in terms of reaction to the lockdown, I guess I mean here. I mean, how you're seeing a real old-fashioned sort of Catholic-Protestant divide. I mean, which were the parts of Europe that really locked down in a draconian way very quickly? Admittedly, they were the places that were also most adversely affected. It was France, and it was Spain, and it was Italy, and, and Poland, is one might include in that group too. The, the Catholic countries have responded in a rather different way. The, the Protestant countries 
Um, and indeed, one might say the whole Anglosphere, UK, US, Australia, was much more reluctant to go into kind of full-blooded draconian lockdown where, where you need a piece of paper to leave your flat kind of thing. Um, and similarly, you know, Northern European Protestant, you know, the Netherlands, Sweden. Sweden is, of course, still the great outlier. OK. Um, anyway. Um, uh, well, just Anne Applebaum, yeah. what do you make of this political systems? Oh, I, I think, it's, I think the, the question is a red herring. The, 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 the real divide is not between democracies and autocracies. The divide is between countries that have competent bureaucracy and excellent public servants and where people tr- have some trust in the government and in and, and where the government uses and puts science at the at the forefront. And those are generally the countries that have done better. I mean, we're still only the very, very, very beginning of this, and that will change. I mean, for example, I think the U.S., you're going to see, a, you know, as the private sector ramps up, as the states ramp up, you're going to see a much better reaction some weeks and months from now. But to date, the, you know, there are plenty of autocracies that are that are reacting disastrously badly. Russia is, a, is in crisis. Um, they lied. You know, they've been lying about how many how many cases they have in Belarus. They're not even acknowledging that anything exists. You know, I think we're going to find that a lot of autocracies perform incredibly badly. So mm. that is really not the dividing line. The dividing line is to do with competence and trust and to the degree to which governments are willing to, to, to give way to scientists. Mason. I think that uh, I, I concur with what Anne just said, but I would say that where the stresses are going to come on on liberal democracies uh, are when the economic uh, when the economic phase of this crisis begins to predominate over the pure epidemiological phase. I mean, we so far we've seen central banks and treasuries take drastic action. A lot of the money committed has not quite got through, and it won't for a while. Uh, we're seeing airlines, railway companies, uh, big manufacturers propped up right now. But if if it, if we get secondary financial effects, if banks start to go, if big financial companies, if your insurer, if your pension pot disappears, then I think we are we're going to see who are the strong and resilient civil societies and who who, which civil societies are, are, where are the places where resilience is just skin deep? And I don't think it's going to be Catholic Protestant. I don't think it's, uh, it's as simple as that. I think it's just about whether or not elements of, as it were, collaborative uh, and homogeneous civil society uh, managed to survive 30 years of free market economics. And in places where they did, uh, Italy is one of them, actually, uh, in places where they did, uh, I think we will see a more effective response. Uh, I do, I, the country I'm the most worried about, possibly like Anne, is America, because 16 million people just in the last three weeks uh, have filed for uh, unemployment. Um, yes, if the if the if the stimulus works, they will come back really quickly. Most of them are temporary layoffs. But if it doesn't work, this is a country without a safety net, and that's uh, one would have to be worried about that, given that all the other. Uh, demographic and political antagonisms that there are right now in the United States. And you want a brief response to that? No, I think that's probably right. I mean, the um, the United States, um, you know, certainly could be in trouble, but it's not because of it's a democracy. It's for, 
It's for many other reasons. Um, and remember, you know, the, among the countries that have performed the best really are the democracies of Asia. South Korea, which is a very vocal, very lively, you know, angry democracy, um, has performed, you know, much better than the United States. So, so mm. that doesn't, you know. And the other thing I would actually keep in mind is remember how fragile autocracies are when economies crash as well. There may be, you know, watch out for, you know, watch Russia, watch some of the other autocracies, watch Iran, watch autocracies around the Middle East and elsewhere. In the, you know, in the second wave of economic crisis, we could see a lot of them in trouble too. Gosh, that, that sounds like a, another whole conversation. So interesting. There's so many things there I'd like to follow up. I'm not going to because uh, the luxury of this is that I have already gone over time. One last quick thought then from each of you an upmarket, upmarket, upbeat even thought to end with. (laughs) Anghara Thomas asks, what do you each predict or hope will be the most positive effect of this crisis, either in the UK and or globally? David Goodhart. I think our our domestic national social contracts will be partly rewritten. I mean, of course, when this is over, we'll all really want to go back to normal, but uh, there will be some lasting patterns that have emerged from this, I think. I mean, the, you know, the, the point that a lot of people have, have made over the last few weeks, that it's revealed the kind of hidden plumbing of the, the people that keep our societies going from day to day, whether it's the care workers, people who work in supermarkets, people who drive vans, and, you know, people who did jobs that you, you know, the school teachers used to sort of frighten their pupils saying, if you don't pass your exams, you will end up stacking shelves in a supermarket. Well, it turns out that stacking shelves in a supermarket is an absolutely essential function in modern society. And how we can, it's not so much about economics, and we already have a relatively high minimum wage in this country, but how we can kind of raise the status or how we can keep the raised status of such functions. Mm-hmm. One really interesting point. And I think there will be, as Paul has said, I think that, it, it's true. There is still no, there is still no magic money tree, <laughs> and you know, and how you know we will end up with with um, debt to GDP of, I mean, I think more than 100 percent. It'll be 120, 130 percent probably. And how I, I don't think we're going to go back to austerity. I mean, you know, this government has surely learned the lessons, um, uh, you know, of the of the last austerity. But how will we pay for it? I mean, through tax rises, through borrowing, through through printing money, which is effectively what QE is. I mean, no one seems to be talking about inflation, but at some point, mm. when we are in a, in a classic... We, we are, I mean, with this is meant to be Q, positive, David. It was meant to be positive. Right, yeah. <laughs> well, the other, my other prediction... Um, that, that's so, I mean, oh, I mean, yeah, people do, like the Irish reform their property taxes on the back of the last crisis. I hope we can do that in this country. I think we may well do things like that. But final, my prediction is that Trump is going to turn... Trump is going to turn possibly somewhat Bonapartist, he's going to go for a real national leadership. I mean, he has actually tried to be fair to Trump, if one one can do such a thing. He has <laughs> mentioned the idea of, of using this kind of national quarantine rules that would give him more authority. And he's been pushed back so far on that by democratic states. But I think he is going to go for something. He's going to call in the army. He's going to call in the National Guard. He's going to nationalise the health service. Um, he's then going to win an election on the back of a kind of Steve Bannon economic nationalism, massive infrastructure investment, um, which is why possibly he's being so nice to the Chinese. Okay. He knows <laughs> he has to get somebody to pay for that. Yeah. Quite a prediction there. Paul Mason, what do you think might be a, a positive and lasting effect of this crisis? 
Well, I said before, the critique of neoliberalism, the critique of free market society that I have is that it's not so much that it that it simply marketizes all all, all relationships, but but it, it but it imposes market norms of behavior on people and people internalize them. But when the market isn't providing so easily uh, for you, what you find is that non-market forms of behavior and rationality um arise spontaneously my neighbor handed me a freshly baked loaf of bread he's a chef across the uh, six feet away obviously uh, across the garden uh, pet fence and i handed him my excess um, onion set so these are onions that you grow in the ground and and really that's going on everywhere it's minor but its social impact is is amplified because people realize there's more you know, we, we're not just homo economicus. We're not just market actors. We're also zoon politicon. We are political animals, and we want to be political animals. And our community spirit is being kind of tested to its limit because we can't touch each other, we can't hug each other, we can't meet each other, but we can make gestures. And I think those gestures have been very positive, certainly in the area of London I live in. And Applebaum. So I never believed that community spirit had disappeared in the first place. So I, and I'm, I'm, I'm glad it's, I'm glad it's back and in, in so many places, though, of course, not everywhere. But, you know, I have a, I have a more philosophical answer to your question, which is there is something so odd about this moment where all of us are alone in our houses and the experience of lockdown or, or quarantine is now shared with so many millions of other people around the world, you know, people in China and people in Thailand and people in, you know, in, 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 in Hungary and people in Texas. You know, I can't help but think that that weird moment of, you know, global sharing when so many people are having the same experience Will will increase a feeling of global solidarity and international solidarity. Whatever you know, bad things are going to happen over the next few months, and whatever you know, borders slam shut, and whatever you know, whatever nationalists try and take advantage of the situation. There is this moment where even I feel it, you know, here in rural Poland, this kind of sense of shared humanity with so many other people, and it's uh, it's, mm. it's 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 weirdly enheartening. Well, uh, these are positive thought to end on. Thank you all very much, Anne Applebaum, Paul Mason, David Goodhart. Thank you to all of you listening out there and for your questions. I am going to hand back to Intelligence Squared. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Partnerships.